This episode of The Interchange is made possible by Absa and Timu. Hello and welcome to the final episode of The Interchange Season 1. We're coming to you live from Cliff Central Studios in the heart of Josie. I am your host, Busim Kumbozi. So we're closing off Season 1 with the Women's Month debate um, around the state of women's rights in the workplace. I always say that we miss an, an important opportunity when commemorative events come by and we celebrate without adequately reflecting on the present conditions that people face. And I think I say this because I want to open with a terrible, dreary status quo, um, you know, because we've been 25 years into our democracy, but women still languish in the shadows, taking up most of the domestic and child caring responsibilities while still having to slog it out for eight hours in the corporate space. Um, a woman's workday is certainly not an eight hour stint in the office. And it's quite ironic because women outnumber men in our country and globally. And women are more likely to graduate from university, yet are still not represented in the high, um, higher positions in corporate and are still not the owners of wealth, nor are they the owners of the economy. So we're desperate for solutions. And one that immediately comes to mind is gender quotas. Many countries are now mandating companies to diversify their boards as much as possible, as much as 40%, in fact. And, uh, you know, when only 4.7% of companies listed on the JSC have female executives, it becomes crucial to ask ourselves what we're going to do to fast-track a more progressive public corporate structure. So today's motion is this House supports the implementation of gender quotas in the private sector, especially in executive and managerial <coughs> positions. To debate this motion, we've got Rinya Singh, an Indian diaspora matric student who's constantly angry about Scarlett Johansson being in Ghost in the Shell. In fact, I'm going to ask her to like tell us more about what that means. So Ghost in the Shell was a very popular Japanese anime series mm -hmm. and manga series and when Hollywood decided to create it as a live action series as usual they messed up pretty badly the <laughs> Japanese lead character ended up being played by Scarlett Johansson in a black wig wow. as if that's a suitable excuse for a presentation in Hollywood today I hope there's relevance to some of that in today's topic but next up we have Neo who is a PPE student a poet and a natural hair enthusiast she in fact tells me to say it as her only priority in life is natural hair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought I did some more reflection. I feel like my two priorities are my hair and dismantling the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then we have Atle Hang Molefe, who is a PPE student and an activist, and Nontlantla Masanabo, a law student and the best speaker at the Southern African Debating Championships 2017. Our expert for today's topic is Sikhle Bolani, a strategist with over 15 years experience in brand communication, internal communication, employee engagement, public relations, crisis management, writing. She recently published a book titled We Are the Ones We Need, lending her voice to discrimination in the workplace, a territory that many are afraid to uh, to enter. Sikhle, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You know, your book has become a, a catalyst for a really powerful conversation about the experience of women, particularly black women in the workplace um, in corporate South Africa. I want to ask you from, from your personal experience to dig deep and really, um, you know, tell us what you think true equity looks like in the workplace. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have when we're having this conversation around diversity, inclusion, transformation in the workplace is that we are now in a space where all companies have prioritized diversity and inclusion, 
but it doesn't really speak to actual meaningful transformation in organizations. So, yes, you may have more women, more black women in certain positions, but they don't have that organizational power that's transferred onto them. So they aren't able to actually drive an agenda that is supportive of women in the workplace. Um, we also are not seeing enough women heading up successful organizations. I mean, you mentioned the stats around the JSE, which is appalling. Mm. We're in 2019 that organizations are still not reflective of the demographics of this country. Mm. Um, so we really do have a long way to go. Uh, quotas, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what comes through in the arguments from today's conversation. I have my own views on it, but I'll share that at the end. Um, but I'm really quite keen to hear what the debaters' views are on this topic because I think that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Mm. Um, we certainly have a long way to go, that's for sure. Definitely, and you know, I think that gets us right into the debate. I'm sure that everyone listening wants to hear the kind of arguments that are going to come from both prop and op. But before we get into it, let's just quickly go through the rules of the debate. So we're following a British parliamentary format. We have four speakers, two on each side, proposition and opposition. The first two are going to be proposition, obviously. The last two are going to be opposition. In terms of speaking order, we're going to have Prop 1 speaking first and Op 2 speaking last. Each speaker has four minutes to deliver their arguments. The first minute and the last minute are protected, but in between, the opposing team can ask points of information. Are we all cool on the rules? Cool, yeah. let's get started in the, with the debate. Renya, your time starts now. For far too many years, we've seen women being sidelined to the sides of the boardroom where they can't speak, they can't be heard, and they can't make decisions that affect the way their company functions and ultimately their universe and their um, surrounding world functions. We think that it's exceptionally important to have as many women in the workplace speaking out, telling us about their stories, um, influencing their company and the way it runs as possible. We think for that, for that reason, we think that gender quotas are absolutely necessary in today's society. We think that having, let's say, 40% off a board being comprised completely of women, 40% of all managers at all levels being women, is exceptionally important. We think this is ex important because executives inside a boardroom are able to uh, drive the policy of the company, d d describe the way in which that company is going to um, carry out things uh, later on in the future, and managerial positions are specifically important in influencing employees, the way they think, the way they work, and um, helping p employees within the company further themselves. We have two main arguments today. Firstly, why we think that principally women are entitled to being in positions of power as a means of reparations for things that haven't happened in the past. And secondly, we think that um, having women anywhere benefits in a work environment positively. One minute is up. On to my first argument here. We think that specifically because women have been excluded from things like government for very long, we haven't been allowed the right to vote or occupy seats in government for a very long time, and that sort of change is only coming now. We think that compounding that is the fact that women aren't hired or aren't appointed to a managerial or executive posts as it is. We think that many things such as hiring bias or being, women being seen as less professional or less capable than men means that women are less likely to be appointed to these spaces of power. This happens simply because women are seen as being more emotional or less professional, less capable than men. And because of that, we think that there's a great bias against women getting there in the first place. And secondly, what we think this means is that women naturally have to work harder in order to get to these spaces. We think that it is and always has been hard for women to access these spaces. What this means is that there's less women in these spaces. The legitimacy of women in these spaces becomes affected 
greatly. You become a minority in these spaces and it becomes nearly impossible for women to uh, collectivize and to uh, mobilize and make things better for themselves. We think that what this means is that the work environment becomes exceptionally depressing and very hard for women to work in because it's hard to work in an environment where you aren't listened to, where your feelings and your problems aren't listened to and aren't taken care of. So we think that the constant exclusion of of, uh, women from these spaces means that women now are simply entitled to these positions and that we should just give them these positions because of um, past things that haven't been addressed uh, properly. Secondly, we think that currently women are the minority in most workplaces. So you're not going to see a lot of women in places that make a difference and places that have... um, power and allow them to make changes within their companies. It makes it much harder for them to enact any reforms in the workplace. So sexual harassment, for example, goes mostly unnoticed because there aren't women in power who can take that up with the rest of the company. We think that environments where these demands aren't met make um, women's ability to comp- uh, to do good work become compromised. And the reason why this happens is because of an unfriendly work environment. We, so both, we think that what will happen with more women in managerial and executive positions will give, in, give women the ability to enact critical reforms on things such as paid maternity leave, sexual harassment, diversity training, menstrual care and fertility treatments, all issues that affect women specifically within the workplace. We think that they'll be, it'll be possible to have these reforms because you have women in um, positions of power who have bargaining power within that government, within that um, space. But even if this ha- still doesn't happen, we think that having women in spaces of power increases the legitimacy and the power of the female voice because these women are now in powerful spaces. For for that reason, we think gender quotas are incredibly important in today's Rainier, society. Your time is up. Thank you so much for that speech. I now hand over to Atlehang to open the opposition case. Here, here. It's usually an easy cop-out to simply say that the creation of quota systems means that you're able to eradicate all the problems that women face in this yeah, working yeah. spaces. We think it's important to understand that things such as regulations are much more important as opposed to setting a quota system. I also like the fact that she introduced the, the point that like you're only going to have 40% of women, which simply shows you that this is something that has been happening for a very long time, where quota system is a very short-term policy that is often very stagnant. So it means 10 years later, even in the parliament's system, you still have 40% of women. This means, ladies and gentlemen, that you're still going to have 60% of men, which means that they're going to have the upper hand and can still control the system. So you aren't necessarily changing anything by simply introducing a quota system. Secondly, and the most important thing is to understand that an introduction of a quota system does not necessarily change the life of a woman who's at the lower level of like the, the the corporate world, which simply means that the only small fraction of elite women in those systems are able to benefit from the policy that you were trying to create. So ultimately, you aren't necessarily changing (coughs) anything by simply creating a quota system that still says that you need to have 40% of women. So in our entire policy, I'll be looking at the uh, gender quota system in the state and and then Nontlantla will then look at the uh, the gender quota system in the private sector. So the first is to understand that post the apartheid system, the transformation policy that we created then were... um, created to ensure that there's an it's an inclusive system where you're going to introduce things such as the quota system to make sure that you're able to in- integrate women and allow them to enjoy the benefits. But the problem with this is to understand that because of lack of education where women have not been able to be given the opportunity to education means that you aren't able to get qualified women to be in those positions of power. What simply means that because men have been in those positions for a very long time, especially in public administration, you aren't able to get the kind of recourse that you were talking about in today's debate. 
You're still going to get women being vilified and told that you are in that position because of a quota system and not necessarily that you deserve to be in that position. So it's very important that you don't necessarily change the lives of a small fraction of women in, in, in like the corporate world or like that, the 40% and ultimately say that that's enough and that's all and that's the only thing that we can do to change the system. It's always important to start from the grassroots where you give women the same opportunities to educate, you know, to give women the same opportunities to all the kinds of things that men have been given all these other times. So the second thing also to understand, even in the current parliament system where they have introduced a quota system and said that they want a 40% or 50% of women, men have existed in the system for a very long time. That's why even when we did public administration and politics, we got like the, uh, con- the conception was that like men have been in the system for a very long time, which means that it's easy for them to manipulate the system and control the system because they understand how it works. At a point at which you're going to introduce a woman 10 years later where they don't even understand how the system operates or how the system works, it means that they are like gullible to be, um, to be oppressed in those very instances and not left. necessarily being allowed to make the decisions or their voices to be had. So it's mm. important to understand here, at a point at which you introduce a quota system, you aren't necessarily changing all the things that women have suffered. Have suffered. We think even in the corporate world where a woman goes for maternity leave and they're not necessarily allowed to stay for, for that long and not necessarily allowed to be given the amount of, they're not given like the same salary where they consistently have to depend on UIF, which oftentimes is not enough and none will look at this. Ultimately, we think even post-apartheid system, the introduction of the quota system has not changed anything. It is still stagnant. It's just a short-term policy to silence the struggles of women and not necessarily having and an, an genuine yeah, yeah. conversations about the struggles of women, both in the workspace and also yeah, yeah. in the world. We think it's important to understand that we imagine a world in which we change this policy, we change the system before we can even try and say that a quota system will ultimately change everything that women have suffered for a very long time. We think at a point at which they want to win this debate, they have to show us why introduction of, of, of the quota systems means that there's a greater okay, opportunities your time is up, for a lot of women. A great speech. And let's hear Neo's rebuttal and closing of the proposition case. Here, here. Yeah. Okay. An important truth that we have to accept as anyone who seeks to dismantle the patriarchy is that it is multifaceted and that it adapts. And what that means is that there, was, there will always be a patriarchal response to anything that changes it, which means that when women were able to get jobs, the patriarchy adapted itself and just made jobs horrendous for women. And the point at which they were able to get maternity leave, it adapted yeah, yeah. itself and stopped paying them. And what that means is anything we do to change it will be met with backlash. We cannot not act because men are not going to be comfortable. We can not not act because men are going to want to hold on to a system of power. And that's really important because part of what Atahang tells us is that men are going to manipulate the system to keep making it harder for women to flourish. And that's bound to happen. And that is why any change that we implement has to be met, has to be done specifically using that system and with a system. And that is the importance of what Renya told you, that what women have been denied has been institutionalized and therefore we need institutions to give them that which they've been denied historically. But beyond that, what she told you was that that even if we don't get One the outcomes up. that we yeah. want, it is important to give women something that they haven't been given before, and that is preference within the working world, right? So I'm going to be handling rebuttal mainly like using what Rinya gave you as a point of reference, because there were two points in her, two important things in her speech. Firstly, that women deserve to be given priority, but secondly, 
But secondly, that it is going to be better for the entire workplace. And that is because when women are in executive positions, they can shape company policy. And when women are in managerial positions, they can make the experience better for people, for other women who they are working with. That is critical because it eliminates what Atle Hang tells you, that it doesn't help women who are working in the lowest rungs of the organization. Having female managers means that they're more likely to be able to like liaise with their managers. People who are likely to understand the struggle that they face just existing within the workplace no. and having people in boardrooms who can shape policies to make your life less difficult means that you have a better working experience for everyone, for people directly affected by policy and for people who are enacting policy for the organization entirely. At the hand. Okay, cool. Now, yeah. Women are normally and usually the minority in voting in terms of boards and decision making in the company. So what does one woman in the midst of 10 men do for the decision making? More than zero, right? That's the point that we're making. <laughs> that we need to be making anything. some kind of reforms and we need to be doing more than what has been done pr- previously, right? And like, and this is really important about quotas, right? We understand that quotas are short term and we understand that quotas seek to just get people into the room. But the point at which can fill the room with more people, more can be done. We don't think a single quota is going to be like ought to be upheld for more than 10 years without any kind of reform without any kind of adaptation without trying to understand the difference that your quota has made before and given that what must be done now and if we can get 40 percent of women into a boardroom and the company does better then we should get 50 percent into that boardroom and the company does better we should get 51 60 percent and we're willing to use those quotas as a tool because the evaluation of the debate is whether or not we ought to be using quotas to try and and achieve these reforms, right? And those quotas are allowed to adapt in the same way that the patriarchy is going to adapt to women who are within those rooms, right? What have I proven essentially in my speech? Firstly, that we're still likely to get a better experience for everyone involved within the corporate structure, which is basically where this debate takes place. But beyond that, that even if we didn't make lives better for women who need to go on maternity leave or need like or need like their work medical aid to pay for fertility care, we're still likely to make their lives better because they can speak to managers who understand their struggles. They can speak to executives who understand their struggles and those policies can be shaped in making their own lives better. Thank you so much for that speech. Now, we're now going to hand over to Nontanta to close the opposition case and also to close the debate here. here. It is important to recognize that it's been too long uh, um that the wave of quotas has existed. This is not a new uh, phenomenon. It has existed, and we think often it, the trajectory has proven that it exists in isolation. Often states have used quotas as a subpar way to silence women and to tell them that we've done enough, and often it has been used as a scapegoat. And we think that's not enough. We think we need quotas in conjunction with other policies that affect corporate culture, that affect the culture uh, in state bureaucracies and in state administration administrations and we think uh, quotas in 2019 are just not enough. They're not going to do uh, what needs to be done to optimally allow women to exist, to function and to uh, use their um, their talent and their creativity to the, op- the most optimal level. A couple of issues of rebuttal. Firstly, we think it is clear that um, 
because the quotas don't say which women, we are going to fall into a trap where white women are given the positions because they are proximate to privilege and they are less threatening to white men. And so what ends up happening is you end up giving the same women who have privilege, who have capital, who have resources, and who have been mobilized in society, more resources, which affects the distribution of wealth and the redistribution of wealth that black women deserve and have so deserved for so many years. That's the first thing. And secondly, we tell you that that given the fact that women are going to be only entered at a, ma- a minimum level. So this is how quotas work. Quotas can be uh, set up in terms of a goal. So in 2010 or in 2024, you should have 40% of women in your thing. Or this is the minimum of women you should be hiring. We think companies are going to take the minimum routes by putting the least amount of women in those rooms so that those women don't have actual influence in decision making because in corporate especially, these companies are private. They have memorandums of corporations, they are ran by white men and that agenda will still carry on to find its way into the boardroom and to the voting structure. And we think if you don't change the voting pattern, the the voting culture, as well as the number of women in that room in a more aggressive uh, uh, policy that involves itself in the culture that goes on in in those boardrooms, that involves itself in the culture that goes on in the workplace, you will only have women as tokens and not actual influencers and decision makers. And we think that is very dangerous because it's a scapegoat and it doesn't recognize the problems that need uh, more overt uh, government policy that interferes with the way these companies are run. Secondly, we think that the way women are raised and the fact that the state has none taken, the state has neglected the way women are raised and telling them that you have the right to be assertive, you have the right to want more, you have the right to want to move in the corporate ladder. Often these things are associated with masculinity. What this means is that women will go into the workplace and face two situations. One, it's either you're too uh, uh, reserved, you're not assertive enough, in True. which case men will stamp True. on you, right? So we think the state needs to f- uh, fix the social issues around oh, the way women are, and children are raised. Or you'll have a set of women who will be bossy and often will receive hostile treatment from their colleagues, True. and we think that is very dangerous. We need to in- insert legislation to fix those relations. You also neglect the lower level and the entry-level employment patterns, because those are also very racist. If you make it just corporate, given the prestige and the image that... Pr- uh, uh, executive and managerial positions have, you will uh, give companies the ability and states the ability to claim that we've done enough and that entry-level jobs and middle-level uh, level jobs are, 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 are not going to be taken care of in terms of sexist and racist employment patterns. Lastly, we think you don't account for the double shift that women work. We think you don't account for child-rearing services that give women the opportunity to do their work to the, uh, to, to the optimal. You don't account for maternity leave that is unpaid. You don't account for the stereotypes that women have to go through when they have children that makes them less likely to be more employable. You don't account for the uh, the Im- income gap between men and women. You don't account for the depression, the anxiety, and the unhappiness that you cause in women because you don't change the culture. What that does is, and you need to realize you can't separate labor from emotion. And if women True. are being abused True. in workplaces explicitly or implicitly, you eventually affect their ability to be productive and to give you the best version of themselves. None. What that does... Oh, your God. time is up. Okay, <laughs> I want to let you finish so bad. <laughs> I want to let you finish so bad, but your time is up. Okay. Sile, what did you think about this debate? How do we navigate the ideas that have been put forward by both teams? I think it was a very, very robust uh, debate that took place today and some very interesting and good points that came out from both sides of the argument. 
Um, from my experience, um, my view is that we need a combination yes. in order for us to have a sustainable solution. Because in order for us to have equality, we must first have equity. Yes. And quotas speak to that. Yes. But that's all that quotas speak Do, to. Yeah. It levels the playing field. But how do we get beyond that? Yes. There was a lot of talk um, around legislation and how to, what role does legislation play in ensuring that women have a seat at the table yes. and more women have access to organizational power, to decision-making, to influencing organizations. And yes, legislation has a very, very big role to play. The problem that we currently have is implementation of these legislations and holding organizations accountable. For instance, we're still struggling with equal work and equal pay, for instance, right? It's in the law that if you have employees that are doing the same or similar work, that they should be earning roughly the same amount of money. Mm. And yet we still have huge income inequalities within the workplace. You still have issues where black people are earning less than their white counterparts. You still have issues where black women are the lowest earners in organizations, and yet the law is there. So where is the problem? The problem is around implementation. So until we fix those gaps, we're still going to have these issues. Yeah. Mm. Because all that quotas do is they say, okay, fine, we'll bring five more women in. But those women are then put in those positions and not given a voice. They're not listened mm. to. They don't have yeah. access to the support that they require in order for them to fulfill their roles and fulfill their mandates as women in leadership in those organizations. It also means that there's an issue around representation, which means the youth grow up and look around and see men are the ones that run everything. Mm. Yeah. Men are the ones that must be in control. Men are the ones that have the power. Men are the only ones that understand business, which is not an accurate reflection of what's actually happening. Mm. The other thing that we have to look at is culture, right? Because when you're talking about transformation, it's not just about having black people and white people and black women and white women and all of these things having equality in the workplace. It's about looking at conscious and unconscious biases that exist mm. in the organization. And how do you start uprooting those? It's about looking at the type of language that is used in an organization mm. and does it impact on women negatively or positively? Does it support women or does it not support women and their development within the organization? It's around generalizations. Mm. You know, like, oh, Oh gosh, you guys are always changing your hair. You know, black women, mm. you always look so different. Almost didn't recognize you today. You know, all of these types of things that are very kind of nuanced, but that speak to the fact that women spend more time either wanting to look pretty or wanting to work out to do things that are feminine as opposed to applying themselves within the workplace or being productive in the workplace. You have issues around misogyny. Mm. That is a major, major issue. I mean, we just saw a video this past week, the Dalai Lama saying that if his successor is a woman, she must be attractive. A whole mm. Dalai Lama. <laughs> so it's literally everywhere. We have sexism. You know, there was a mention about sexual harassment and how women are still exposed to that within the workplace. So transformation is not just about the people and the numbers. It's about the culture. It's about the language. It's about the way that systems are set up and who they're designed by and for. Mm. You know, when you look at the U.S. and their politics, you have people who sit in a room and it's a room full of men and only men and they make decisions about women's reproductive rights. Mm. I mean, we are going backwards when we should be moving in a completely different direction. So it really is a combination of both concerted and very decisive effort um, that is required from corporate 
to make that commitment, but also from government and to mm. actually hold them accountable mm. because it's unacceptable that we still have the current conditions. Mm. And But in terms of a combination of, of both, what do we lead with first? You know, um, and, I, and I want to throw this question to proposition because you, you're saying in your, in, in your arguments essentially that it's better to have one than to have zero. In te- for, as far as the advocacy of the kind of changes that we're trying to see is concerned. So would you say we lead first with the quota and, you know, that system then creates some kind of lobbying power for women that didn't exist before? I think I think there's there's power in numbers and that's part of the reason I am very for quotas mm. because uh, in my life I, I haven't been in many male dominated spaces mm. like I've, I've I've been surrounded by by strong women for most of my life and I met them when I got to debating and I was like who are you people yeah. and like who do you think you are really <laughs> but it's important to have a number for instance I was mm. like the only girl mm. on the SA team last year and I feel like you know, it would have gone down if I wasn't there because yeah. there wouldn't have been yeah. that voice and someone to tell them that this has an inherent bias that mm. is against me and what mm. you're saying is problematic. So I think that it's great to have quotas because having people in the room is introducing the potential for accountability. I just one of the things I fear about quotas is that they charge you with being the revolutionary. Yeah. Right. Mm. So they're like, yeah. we will give you the shot, but after yeah, that, yeah. it is really on you. But like, also the emotional and psychological trauma yeah. Yeah. of being the woman who has to sit in that kind of board where you yeah. know that you're either being stretched thinly as this golden skirt or mm. you know you're it's some or at least there's messaging that you're a token. Mm. So that psychological mm. trauma that women who are often, you know, do we reflect on, for example, why companies put women in HR positions, for example, from an executive point of view, or only put you in a CEO position when there's crisis management? So that trauma as well, I think yeah. you're hitting on a on a high point. Asikli, you want to say something quickly and then I'm going to go to Non? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that the other danger around being somebody who's put in a position as a quota is that if you do something wrong, then it mm. becomes justification for, you see, we've this got to go back why. to the old yes. way. Honestly. Mm. This is why. Honestly. Mm. Well, I just wanted to say, I watched this really cool TED Talk and some parts of social construction and engineering um, make women um, less assertive. Um, and that TED Talk was by Busi. And she says that women are less assertive and they, they normally don't think they deserve these positions. And often that cripples their ability to see longevity in those positions, mm-hmm. to see growth in those positions, to see actual development, which will most certainly affect your ability to make this change. And so in reality, um, social engineering is also a thing that we need to go back to. Yeah. The, that thing has to, that part of the conversation has to be part of the, the, um, holistic, um, um, Mm. way forward because mm. if you have open positions but not enough girls believing in themselves or open positions and women occupying but always being scared and always being reserved mm. what real change are you actually making on that note because that's that's immensely powerful and i was going to ask you this specific question um because i know it's something you are particularly passionate about what makes us think women are all pro-women can we delve into that and how how do we does it matter 
I've met so many women who can I, keep the patriarchy. Okay. I'm so sorry for it's stealing like your thunder. I'm it's so okay. sorry. It's just, it's something I've come to understand specifically at home that like home, and I mean this by my, my, my general community, home is, an, is a very patriarchal space. Yeah. 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 But the problem with home is that it's not enforced by men, it's enforced by women. Sure. And mm. men just enjoy it. So I think of it sort of like a, mm. like a bit of a Mount Olympus for the patriarchy, right? Mm. The men are sitting on the mountain and everyone standing around it protecting it are women mm. because their proximity to the patriarchy makes them feel like they're in a position that is important. Mm. But the problem is still an exertion of the mm. patriarchy yeah. in their lives. Mm. And it, it, it's really problematic because it's also very all-encompassing. It's... Like I'm, I'm different people at home and on campus because at home I can't speak out as much as I as, as I normally do. Like my younger brother has more agency than I do in my own mm. house, right? And I can't wear what I want. I have to like mod- moderate what I wear, modulate my speaking. I can't mm. fight my parents even when I feel like they're being unreasonable, even though I'm an entire adult. Mm. And that space is 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 designed to make women incubators, homekeepers, and infantilize them to such an extent that. There is no conception of a life outside the patriarchy. Mm. And anyone who does so is not insulting the patriarchy, but rather insulting all the women that came before them and insulting the entirety of the space as opposed to the problems with the space. Okay. Um, I think I can also relate to what Noah is saying, but I think it's also important to initiate those uncomfortable conversations mm. in your house. And that's yeah. normally what I do all the time. I'm like, but also you can't do this. You can't do one, two, three. So I think it's always important to initiate those conversations and have conversations with your like parents or anyone at home who happen to be custodians of patriarchy. Um, the second thing also that I wanted to talk about is just like how black women are always expected to work 10 times as hard to get the same opportunity as someone who just like had to like just do the bare minimum at most. So I think it happens everywhere. It happens even in leadership positions at in, like in, in institutions. It's not necessarily a matter of saying that it only happens in the corporate world, but it also happens even with, with like our male counterparts, like our peers, when we talk about these conversations where they say that like a leadership role should only be occupied mm. by a male. It's like something that even happens in our debating union where for the longest time the president has always mm. been a male because the assumption is that men are better than women or the assumption is mm. that like women a woman needs to be like assertive in order to occupy those positions so it's really like really hard to be a black woman and have like intersectional identities but at the same time opposition and i just want uh, you guys to i mean when atle hang opened her speech she spoke about um quotas being a cop-out um but cognizance must be taken off global trends I feel. And if we look at trendsetters like Norway and the fact that in 2013 they had 10% women representation on boards and they imposed a mandatory 40% quota, today they lead the world in terms of board diversity with more than 40% women representation. In fact, they have 42%. In that sense, it doesn't seem like it was a cop-out at all. And I want you guys to engage that. Um, because if someone is listening to this podcast and they're a policymaker or a business leader where the onus is on them to, to, to make steps that can create some kind of structural change, but you've called the quota a cop out, you know, how, how, what does that mean? I think, like I said in my speech, the wave of quotas has been existing for a very long time. Mm. And so we need to also analyze how long states have had to use this primary entry level mm. to change mm. the image and the demographic mm. that is represented in companies and in the states. And 
uh, there needs to be some sort of progression. And we think the reason why we're saying it's a cop out is it's a cop out if it's the only solution the only because the problem that. is deeper and mm. the state needs to be more intervening in, mm. and, and often they've said that just because we, we've given you 40% of a corporate company in terms of mm. um, the constitution of the board, then we're done. We're finished. Mm. And no, this thing has ripple effects. It has an actual institutionalized culture. It has um, other things that inform its function, misogyny, mm. sexism. Um, you know what I mean? And, and, mm. and, and so it's a cop-out if it is in isolation. However, we do think we recognize the importance of descriptive representation. We think it does have mm. uh, importance in terms of role modeling, um, seeing people in power. Mm. But we need an actual change in decision-making. Mm. We need an actual change in the influence that women have in the workplace. Mm. But we also need women to be functioning at their best. Mm. Um, and we think it is unfair for the state to say quotas are enough when they have the power to be holding companies accountable for compliance with um, uh, which are now non-existent mm. future laws mm. that force them to account for the culture that they mm. purport and sometimes... Mm. All the time, mm. culture that they incubate mm. and they and they further. So they mm. need to take responsibility for that as well. Rini, are you fearful of the world that you're going into as a young woman who is so excellent? You know, um, I mean, your bio hardly details some of the extraordinary achievements you have as as a student who's only in matric, but going into a world that only has 4.7 percent of female chief executives in a country where women have more professional mm. degrees. How do you feel? I think that obviously I'm quite a bit afraid. I know that it's not going to be easy. But I also, through debating, I've learned that there's always going to be women around me who are here and understand, not obviously to the same extent. Obviously, black women have it much worse. I'm not saying that at all. But understanding at least on a certain level. And I think that, thankfully, I have a lot of strong women ahead of me who are paving the way, mostly women like you. And... I will obviously try to do my best as it is, but I feel really supported actually by having this sort of space where I can have Mm. this conversation Mm. and having these thoughts outside and knowing like tips and tricks and trying to find a way out into the world. But I think, I don't think it's as scary as it was before. Mm, I don't think it will be as scary. And by the time I get there, I mean, I've Mm. got a long way to go, (laughs) but Mm. by the time I get there, I think it will be better. And that's all thanks to women who are strong and try and make a difference. Mm. And Non, you wanted to say something. So my last contribution is it's clear that patriarchy is aggressive and it doesn't want to let go of power. And women then have to realize that in order to empower women, we need to be able to help them realize their voices, to realize their potential. And when Neo speaks about the household and how political it is and how the power dynamics are skewed towards and in favor of boys, uh, we need to recognize that... What Atlehang said is important. Confrontation is important. But teaching girls outside of that household to be confrontational with men is also important. Mm. Pushing the state to protect women's tenure in work from being fired for things like subordination when they were just talking about how a boss unfairly cheated them. Those kind of things need to be taken into consideration where laws need to protect women from being let go so easily because they are confrontational and they Mm. have a voice. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to hand over to Sile to to close off today's discussion, but to also just maybe reflect on the idea of tokenism. As you know, um, powerful black women, there is a tendency to be put in certain positions or used for specific goals that are, you know, beyond what, what we intend 
when we set out to achieve what we want to achieve, but that are part of a better, a bigger framework. And what's the big takeaway for women as far as that's concerned, particularly women who are trying to nudge their way in and be CEO and be head of HR? Um, how do we begin to to think about our, our bodies and our, 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 ourselves? How do we show up? How do we negotiate um, the space that we, we occupy given that we, we, we want to ascend, we want to be powerful in corporate, but we know what the realities are. Um, so there's a few things. The issue of tokenism is one that we're probably going to be dealing with for a, a while to come. And for me, it really just boils down to what do you do with that opportunity as somebody who's placed in it? Do you get that position and then decide you're going to shrink yourself to not rock the boat? Or do you decide to reclaim your power once yeah, you're in that yeah. position and yeah. use that to redirect the agenda? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it really does boil down to what do we do with the opportunities that are provided to us? What do we do with the privilege yeah. that we that we yeah, gain yeah. for whatever yeah, reason? Yeah. And how do we use that to the benefit of others who have been marginalized or oppressed by systems that we have also experienced and understand? I think it's important for us to be to get to a point where we start actively amplifying each other's voices and yeah, each other's yeah. experiences mm-hmm. and being open about it and having these conversations and being loud about about it. Yeah. Uh, we keep whispering about all the issues that women have and black yeah. women and you know all of these various oppressions and struggles and hindrances, but we're not open about it. Yeah. We're not challenging anything. Yeah, yeah. And so nothing's gonna change. Um, we need allies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, we need men who are going to be allies. The UN has been running, UN women has been running a campaign called He for She. Mm. And they're trying to drive that agenda where you, they're trying to get more men to be open and vocal about why it's important to have women there, to have them represented, to have them have that power and to be able to influence agendas and decisions and policies and all of these things, um, which is an important step for us to be able to start breaking down all of these patriarchal barriers that keep women back. The other thing that's important around quotas is organizations are not just going to do it for the sake of doing it because it doesn't serve them. It always boils down to what is the intention behind organizations doing it because if the intention is good, then they're always going to ensure that when they do implement quotas, they do it for the right reasons and they do it in the right way. So they're not going to go for the minimum just because the law says, okay, so then let's just do five because we have to do at least five. And it's about the cultural change um, and, you know, wanting to do things for the good and not just for the benefit of uh, keeping men safe or just to turn around um, profits or whatever the case may be, because women are very capable of turning around profits as well. Um, so intention, values, accountability, transparency, these are all things that organizations need to be held accountable for a lot more. Inclusion. You know, there are so many barriers to inclusion for women in the workplace. We still talk about boys clubs. We still talk about, oh, deals are made on the golf course. So if you can't play golf, sorry for you, you're never going to actually meet decision makers and be able to influence, you know, the kind of decisions that they make. 
um, you know, you're still dealing with black women in the workplace. If you're outspoken or if you're vocal or if you have opinions, you're labeled as aggressive or angry yeah, or unapproachable yeah. or you're not a team player. Yeah, yeah. And all of these things are these wild generalizations that are intended to mute the voices of yeah, black women yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. And these are all the things that we really need to start unraveling before we can start building new systems. Yeah. We literally mm-hmm. have to tear everything down as we know it yeah, yeah. and start from scratch. Wow. Um, you know, just to echo what everyone has said in this um, conversation and to, to just boldly proclaim, you know, I believe that the economy is a woman. I believe that women are important in the economy. I believe that women make a tangible impact on the economy. And if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that women add comparable value, you don't believe that they add comparable skills, um, to their male counterparts is precisely because women haven't been given the opportunity to lead, to be represented, because it's a fact that 90% of the economy is held in the clutches of men. It's an appalling fact at that. And when we make excuses like women are not going to stay long term and are going to cause an expense for the company uh, during maternity leave or child caring responsibilities or board diversity is going to quell investment and profit. We're feeding into an unprogressive system that is inherently biased. And I loved the fact that this debate didn't go into the territory, even from an opposition point of view, but rather explored what kind of structural change needs to walk hand in hand with a quota system. Because whether or not you agree with quotas, the onus is is on business leaders everywhere in the world this Women's Month in particular to reflect on advocacy, to reflect on lobbying, to reflect on the kind of strategic litigation that women need on their side so that systematic change is felt at all levels and not just at a managerial or executive level as far as um, women's rights in the workplace are concerned. But as women, we have a far more important responsibility. You know, it's unfair that the stakes are higher for us than they are, than they are for men. Cicli said earlier that when a woman messes up and she's in on a quota system, it's always easier to say you are the reason why we didn't want the quota system. But it's a reality that we have to embrace ultimately because how we show up literally, literally has the potential to, shri- potential to shrink the space for women who could be coming after us. And so as women... I believe that the idea that we are the ones we need has never resonated as powerfully as it does right now. Um, these are all things we have to think about. These are all things that have to walk hand in hand with commemoration of Women's Month. These are the lived realities of women in the workspace. And I'm so glad that we had younger women who have not even walked into that space reflecting on these issues because it gives me a, a tinge of positivity that's the workplace that our children are going to go into one day will be far more transformed and not on a quota level, but because the world genuinely starts to see the value that women bring to the table. So this was the final episode of the Interchange Season 1. We hope that you enjoyed the season. We hope that um, you leave your comments, that you'll share, um, that you'll have these conversations beyond um, the workplace, start to have them at home. Neo so powerfully articulated some of the views that we need to unpack um, with our daughters, with our moms, with our grandmothers. The, the road is long, but we're going to get there. Thank you so much to all the powerful women who were part of this podcast today. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simu, amplifying the voices of young people. Are women's rights respected and protected in the workplace? 
And can the implementation of gender quotas, especially in executive and managerial positions, help women break through the workplace glass ceiling? The Interchange. Seeing Africa through a youthful lens. (laughs) 